Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. We're back with Dr. Bart Costco, his book, Cool Earth, his website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Bart, let's get back to the Arthur C. Clarke story. So you two started conversing, and uh, what was that like? George? Well, it was a lot of fun. I mean, Arthur was a great mind, I think one of the pioneers, grandmasters of certainly science fiction, but I think fiction more generally, and hard science fiction, George, not fantasy stuff. And, of course, the great example is the story sentinel which became 2001 a space odyssey that's right. a lot of other stuff and part of that was this great sequence of novels which everyone should read called the rama novels and you find out at the end of all these novels that the purpose of the universe is to that we're in a simulation and a godlike figure is running simulations looking for harmonious universe seeds and then comes the big mistake mm-hmm. and arthur was like me obsessed with not making uh, technical mistakes said, this godlike figure says, I'm looking for a closed, dense set of universe seeds. Well, that's mathematically trivial, and he meant open, dense set. I couldn't resist pointing that out to Arthur, <laughs> and it's, there it was. I mean, it's an extremely fine point of splitting mathematical hairs. He was not trained in topology, and so it's not his fault. So when I told him that I had, I also published fiction, I had a short story coming out in a magazine where Ray Bradbury had gone first. It was a men's magazine. And then after Ray Bradbury was Harlan Ellison, then me. And he said, I got to see it. And so, wow, you know, so I, he wanted to see the galley proofs. And I faxed him the galley proofs. Remember, he lived in Sri Lanka. That's right. In Colombo, right. Sri Lanka. And Arthur uh, <laughs> came right back. He, oh, he liked the story, he liked the writing, and he caught a big hole. And he really dressed this professor down. I remember he said, take a seat in the back of the class. He just gave a total payback and totally justified. And what do you do, George, when you got Arthur C. Clarke catching a big hole in a, a science fiction story? It's cool Earth coming out, uh, already typeset. In, a, in those days, it was magazines. So it was very complicated to change it. Well, you take it to the editor, who happened to be a big fan of Sir Arthur, and you say, look, I've got to be able to fix it. And I was able to come up, got real creative and fixed, the problem, it was in the background, I was all caught up in the characters and the story, but it was a real problem, and that made a huge difference. And you fix the story, but I then had a chance over the following years, really decades, you think about it, you hike about it, uh, the characters collide in your mind's eye, and it grew into this current effort, the complete drama of Cool Earth, which, by the way, is what we call a real-time drama. You don't see a lot of those. So if there were a film, and I must say that there is a lot of Hollywood interest in this, if there's a film, the 120 minutes or so of the film or the 120 minutes of the story, like, and so there's very few cases. In the Kubrick case, that was with Dr. Strangelove, or mm-hmm. High Noon was a case, Hitchcock's Rope, more recently the movie Gravity. So it's a real-time thriller that's taken many years to evolve, and it's, uh, well, it's, I, it's, not, it's not for the squeamish, it is the end of the world as we know it. Well, and you gave us happened. 60 years out of it. You gave us to 2080 to get this thing, uh, to get our act together. You got till 2080. There's a lot of simple steps we can take now, and it's unclear whether we're going to do it. It looks like the warming, which had slowed, is definitely speeding up. Again, just in the last year, the, the last 10 years was the hottest decade on record 2019 was the second hottest year on record. 2016 was the hottest year on record. The measurements, George, are getting more accurate. So whatever the politics, and it's ugly, 
of global warming. Let's call it what it is. It's warming, not just climate change. You can change up or down. We're changing up on average. The, the laws of large numbers, as we call them in statistics, are converging more and more in the simulations as more data come around. We just know a lot more about this than we did even 10 years ago. And the trend is up, appears to be accelerating, and there are certain tipping points, including the melting of the Arctic ice. Now, the Arctic is warming about three times faster than the rest of the atmosphere, and that opens up a lot of possibilities for cooling strategies which not everybody's on board with, and, but that's, that's one possibility here. The other thing is, as you warm up in the Arctic and the Antarctic, you begin to thaw the permafrost. That's a very big deal, because you have about twice as much carbon that's in the atmosphere now frozen in the permafrost, but worse, you begin to release methane. I think there was a show last year came out called Fire on Ice or the Ice on Fire, and you're finding this in Siberia. They have sinkholes and other places, when you release methane into the atmosphere, that is a much more potent greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide. And you're going to get accelerations. When you melt the Arctic ice, there's nothing but dark water beneath it. That warms it up versus the Antarctic, which has land beneath it, and so forth. So what can you do? Well, one thing you can do is have a carbon tax. I think most economists agree with that. We are creating what the economists call a negative externality, the sort of thing you do when you pollute. But this pollution stays up in the atmosphere potentially for 100 or so years. A lot of it enters the ocean. We're acidifying the ocean. They're warming. It's real tough to cool that. And we're free riding, countries free riding on one another. China's by far the biggest polluter. We're second. We've been reducing emissions, actually. But we still don't have a, a rational pricing of carbon. And then we're all free riding on future generations. So it's a really vexatious problem, George. It's like the, the COVID is a kind of run up to it to see how we deal with this and mm-hmm. the other pandemics. Can we coordinate? We're not coordinating real well. Not this so one. Far, but it's, you know, it'd be a lot tougher in the case of warming. The other thing we can do is keep all the options on the table, and that includes nuclear energy. Now, there's been a lot of problems with that, the older uranium reactors. And a lot, of, a lot of scare movies like the China Syndrome, but nuclear is a long-term, renewable, reasonably safe. It's got, I know it's got problems in the, the waste products, but we've, we've been addressing that, and that's the uranium nuclear reactors. That's not the new thorium reactors that are underway in development in China and India, for example. It's interesting, if you remember the Democrat candidate, Andrew Yang, mm-hmm. and he right. proposed which is, I think, at odds with much of his party, uh, investing $50 billion in research on thorium reactors to jumpstart that. The thorium fuel cycle, thorium is 90 on the periodic table, uranium is 92, is much safer. There's a lot more thorium. You don't have the kind of meltdown risk. The bomb potential is a lot less because it ends up not with plutonium-239, like our current reactors do, but rather with uranium-233, and, and right down the line. But it'll take, there's a lot of engineering to be done. And in just improving using the newer models of uranium reactors are out there. And finally, George, cooling experiments, what's known as geoengineering. Now, not something as radical as moving the Earth-Moon system like in cool Earth. That's the absolute worst case. Hopefully we'll never get there. But there's a lot of things you could do. Uh, local experiments here in California or the Mojave Desert with putting sulfates in the air, what's sometimes called a designer volcano, and maybe going to the poles, especially the Arctic, to do a little bit that is a form of pollution. It can have some acid rain effects. It won't affect the acidification of the ocean, 
but it will buy time, and it's, I think, a prudent thing to at least be developing it. Right now, there's a, largely a moratorium on geoengineering, but if the acceleration increases, I think that has to be a rational item on the table. And my bigger point, George, from an engineering point of view, every engineering option has to be on the table. You can't have ideology limiting these things. The, the ideology can help put it the issue front and center, but this is going to be a vexing problem, a long-term generational problem. And again, and the incentive is just to punt it, just to kick it down downstream, but we may not have may not have that luxury. So relatively inexpensively, a few billion dollars a year, it looks like, if all goes well, you could spray almost like in a garden hose. This is even in the book Freakonomics years ago, by the way. You could spray some sulfur aerosols, especially, say, over the Arctic, and different simulations have come up with different results. But if you could veil or shade that about 25% from the sun. That's a dramatic change. you could store a lot of the temperatures. You, you sure can. What is Google in your eye that you talk about in the book? We're going to keep shrinking down these search engines, George. And <laughs> right now you're using your fingers, and then you can have the touchpad. And increasingly that's going to be where you, quote, will it a sense of will. But where are you going to store that? I think it inevitably goes in your retina. And there's a blind spot in your retina. There's a way to do it. And it's fairly easy to energize. Really? Without disrupting our vision? That'll be, I mean, it'll take some work. But I think you can have it in there and using some distributed, parallel distributed, in effect, screen, heads-up type of screens. The other thing is as we increase the interface with the brain and the chip, everyone's working on this around the world, uh, maybe that internal picture can be done differently. But I think you can have it there. The other thing is the energy source can be in different places. You can get solar energy from it, and you could also have backup. For example, in your arm, you might have a backup hard drive. But a lot of what you have on your computer, I think that's going in you at some point, and, and quite likely in our lifetime here. And once that starts happening, I don't think there's any turning back to it. When you were putting this together, I mean... Uh... This was based on years and years of your experience with all your other works. Was it difficult or was it easy to come up with the scenario of the book? You know, the scenario I thought of years ago, and it really worked out the story while skiing one night looking at the moon, because the moon gets cracked in the, at the end of the book. But these other technology aspects have, as you suggest, really come out of my published results, and everyone's welcome to view them. I just post another paper on my webpage. It just appear, will appear in the Journal of Neural Networks in September, uh, which I think, uh, in terms of the mathematical theorems in the appendix, are the current state of the art, at least for a week or two in that field. But I had a chance to think about a lot of things in those regards, George, and including efforts on patenting with USC and working with my colleagues. I think of a pretty good feel for where the literature is. Like I have a series of papers coming out at conference, AI conferences next month, well, now we're in July, but July and in August. And as a consequence, you get a sense of what's doable and what's not doable and how these things can go wrong and maybe really terribly wrong. This is one of those years, Bart, people just want to go away. <laughs> it's been a tough one, and it may get tougher still. And then to have yeah. a very contentious election on top of it, yeah, it's, it's oh my a gosh. year to remember. Absolutely. With everything you've been writing about over the years, um, what got you into this area? You, you must have seen something, whether you looked into a crystal ball or what, 
But, I mean, you have been able to put your thumb on a lot of futuristic things that have come true. How do you see these things? A lot of what I did, George, was teaching. So the, the best way to understand a subject is teach it. And we often tell students, just try to explain what you learned today or you think you learned today to your roommate or someone else. So there's that aspect. The more you teach, for example, what's known as Maxwell's equations, the four equations that completely describe electricity and magnetism, and that lead to modern quantum theory and general relativity in some sense, and many, many other things. You just get a deeper feel for that. And once it's embedded in your synapses, you start to create with it. You see a problem, you think of different solutions. And as a professor, I think we get to focus on those kind of abstractions uh, in, in a paid way, in a, in much more than the average person does, and, and more so than the average person does in, in a laboratory. And that's where it's largely come from. But, you know, George, I actually started out writing music. I was a scholarship student to USC on a music scholarship writing film music. And to me, that was one of the hardest things I ever did, to come up with something new. As tough as... Oh, my God, yeah. uh, As that was, uh, and as tough as mathematics, is mathematics is just a language. But to come up with a new theme, new chord progression, uh, it's very tough. And, And it's just a discipline... Of creativity. The other thing you learn from doing that, George, you know whether you got a big result or a little result. I used to write a lot of classical music, and so I'd get a result, say, well, maybe this is good enough for a violin and piano sonata. This something bigger, this really warrants a string quartet, which I did a lot of as a kid. And, or this one is so good that it's big enough it, you could build a symphony on it. Right. right. And, and I did as a kid. And so you get the same sense with science. I'm very hesitant to publish and I usually don't do it unless I have, I consider, at least one major mathematical theorem, and I go over it, and it just grows in time. I take a long time to bring results. Or the book Cool Earth. You know, it really took years of development. I write it, set it aside, and come back. And part of that, for example, I just published a paper since I last talked to you. It came out in November on quantum annealing. Now, this is a powerful way to search bumpy surfaces of cost, trying to find, find a low-cost solution. For certain surfaces, it's the fastest known way. And some people have called this super AI or hmm. AI supremacy, if we can achieve that. But one of the applications of this would be searching genomes. At minimum, trying to come up with versions, say, of your genes that have a much lower chance of getting cancer. But once you open that door, George, once you, be, you turn loose the powers of still Moore's law to some degree, the ever-exponentiating exponential powers of computers to search your genomes, you're going to do a lot more than worry about your health. You're yeah. going to worry about how you look and the like. And, and the novel Cool Earth explores that. So, for example, if you want to make a child, well, we have a way of doing that now, let's say you and your wife or your spouse, and that child is a kind of statistical average. Of course, there's many other averages are known as brothers and sisters. Once you found that average as a kind of dot in what we call genome space, we can then do random searches around that dot, and we can constrain those searches. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.